Well, in Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 10, Paul begins to wrap up his letter. But in wrapping up the letter, he also does something um, where he remarks upon uh, he remarks upon the uh, uh, the previous verses of um, six and seven, uh, and then eight and nine together. And, and when he does this, he's tying it together with um, with the gift that they've provided for him. He's mentioned. Um, but he does this for a particular reason. Remember, he's coming off of, in verses 6 and 7, talking about anxiety, right? He says uh, in verse 6 and 7 there, uh, do not be anxious about anything, right? That's his exhortation. Do not be anxious. He says instead that we ought to rejoice in the Lord, that we ought to offer thanksgiving, that we ought to... Um, be a people who are rooted in this thankfulness. And then he tells us in eight and nine, what we ought to do with our minds, how we ought to be focused on Jesus, on his excellencies, on those virtues that come from God's character. Uh, and so as he transitions, he moves to some practical application here for the Philippians and for you and I, because uh, as you think about anxieties, uh, one of the one of like the biggest causes of anxiety in our lives is our economic situation, our, our money, uh, the, the way that we deal with money. And in our, um, in our society and culture, uh, you know, it's a way, especially as you look around, um, uh, around at like social media, as you look at the news, as you look at uh, TV shows and movies, Money is typically the way that success is measured. Uh, it, it, it speaks to how much happiness one might have or a contentment that one might have. Uh, typically, your, the stories are, uh, that we tell each other are people from going from rags to riches, that they uh, don't have very much, but they have pulled themselves up, they've worked hard, or they've happened upon some, uh, some special way that they have encountered an opportunity that they previously did not have. Um, but then also, um, in, in recent weeks, uh, you know, we've been dealing with uh, a great number of, of uh, I don't know what you want to call it, like social unrest due to um, a lot of the uh, economic recovery from COVID-19 and, you know, talking about how some of these uh, unemployment stimuluses are, are going to be like ending and what are we going to do about that and how, how are things recovering and there are those who are most disadvantaged uh, among us who don't have the same opportunities and are in a much more difficult place while there are some who uh, are taking advantage of this time and trying to uh, make a lot of money off of it and things like that. And there's these uh, big economic disparities that exist there. Um, and, and as we look at the, as we look at the text this morning, what we find is not that there's a lack of, uh, we find that the principle is how to navigate life with money, whether you have it or whether you do not have it. Uh, in this particular text, it does not speak to, um, it does not speak to uh, the reality of uh, of uh, laws that are unjust or things that are set up in an unjust manner or 
opportunities or lack of opportunities uh, that certain groups of people may or may not have. It doesn't speak to those things. You can find some of those things spoken to uh, in other books of scripture, but its primary concern is, and this would be the primary concern even in the other books that speak to those particular economic realities of how uh, one might use their money wisely or steward over those things wisely. Uh, the, the underlying principle is what Paul says here, right? It says that you should not be measuring your life by your financial circumstance. You shouldn't be measuring your happiness or your contentment by your financial circumstance. But what does he say? Well, I draw your attention back to uh, verses six and seven, eight and nine. He says, do not be anxious, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. He says, if you're in a situation, pray about it, bring it to the Lord, right? Be thankful, bring it to him, right? And then the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Remember, we said last week that the presence of God is his peace. It's his peace that he has promised to his people. And he says that when we are a people who are obedient, not to focus on the things that we believe to be unjust, but rather set our eyes upon him and come to him in thanksgiving, uh, then we find ourselves uh, serving and enjoying the presence of the God of peace. This is how he puts it in verse eight. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any ex excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. And so Paul says that it's this, uh, this deep joy in God, this deep understanding of him and enjoyment of him that leads us to a place of peace. It makes us bulletproof, uh, that, uh, that things might move against us that come around us, but this, uh, this joy in Christ insulates us from that outside activity. And it then allows us to look at these things, um, these external circumstances with a lens by which we can see that they are not perhaps Christ-like. Maybe the situation uh, is is a neutral situation and there's nothing wrong with it, but perhaps we can discover that maybe something is not what it appeared to be. And maybe it in fact is not a, um, a God glorifying uh, system or uh, it's not a God glorifying law or it's not a God glorifying opportunity, whatever we might perceive these things to be. Uh, but we have to start there with enjoying Christ in order for us to have the vision that Christ has regarding these things. And then as he comes into uh our text this morning, he opens up to comment upon these things, right? He, he wants to mention two things here. First, his contentment and the secret of his contentment, because he hopes to pass this along to those to whom he has given this command, do not be anxious. Now, he's given this command to the Philippians, and he's given it also to us as members of the body of Christ. As this letter, uh, we read it, this gives us the ability for us to understand what Paul's secret is. He talks about these, uh, his secret of being content, but then he also speaks here uh, in the in the latter half of this section about how we can be a people who are not um, enslaved to our economic situation. Uh, that we're not enslaved to our possessions, but rather how the joy of Christ protects us from that. 
how it insulates us from that. And so let's look at verse, uh, verse 10 and see how uh, Paul unpacks this for us. He says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. So first, Paul opens up and he says this, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, right? Notice what he says here. He's, he doesn't rejoice because they've given him something that he needed. He's not saying, I rejoice that you gave me something. He says, I rejoice in the Lord. I don't rejoice in your gift. I'm rejoicing in the Lord. He's, he's not recognizing that, oh, you Philippians, you guys are so good. He's not recognizing that his, the gift that they gave is so good, but rather he's recognizing the Lord's faithfulness to him in providing for him, providing the resources that he needs. He perhaps had this need and he says, hey, uh, I, I was looking for this. I was asking the Lord for this. And he came through and provided through you. And he can rejoice because the Philippians were faithful to provide for him, to give to him. But as he rejoices in the Lord, he says here uh, that you have revived your concern for me, that you were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. He's, he's reflecting on the fact that they are being Christ-like in their character. They are mirroring God in their character. As God looked upon our plight, he saw that we had need and sent his son Jesus to pay for our sin, uh, to shed his blood on our behalf because we could not rescue ourselves. We could not save ourselves. Paul says, Philippians, you guys are being just like Jesus. You are coming to meet my need. I'm here and on through the work of God, the Lord has sent you to meet my need. They're being Christ-like in their activity and their generosity and their concern here. And this similarly is what uh, he calls all Christians to, right? That we should live in such a way where we are trying to live in a way that we are mirroring Christ. And this is why Paul frames it in such a way in verse 10, as he opens up, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. It's not about himself. It's not about the Philippians. It's not about uh, the gift. It's that Christ is being glorified, that Paul recognizes that it's, it's the Lord being glorified. The Philippians are acting in character um, with God. But, um, and in this, there's opportunity for both parties to be built up. And so he says here in verse 10 that the Philippians have revived their concern for him. Their obedience, um, as, as the Lord works in their hearts, as their obedience leads to Paul having greater joy in Christ. Paul having greater joy in the Lord, right? That's what he says. Their obedience led Paul to treasure God more deeply because they obeyed. Now think about that. Think about that. That impact of their obedience had on the community. What they did, it affected Paul deeply. Now, as you live your life, you have to consider that what you do or uh, it is going to impact the community. It is going to impact everybody else uh, in our room here. It's going to speak into the lives of others. 
right? It's going to minister to others in some ways. And we want this to be done in a way that brings glory to God. We want this to be done in such a way where we say, oh man, I see the faithfulness of God. I am enjoying the Lord so much more deeply because someone else was faithful. Because someone else uh, was faithful to obey the Lord. Not just necessarily in giving here, uh, as Paul remarks about, not just in giving and meeting the needs of others, but just in, in seeing the Lord's work, his faithfulness in your life and what in your long obedience over time, it's, it builds each other. We build each other up through that. And God is glorified when we recognize that that's one of the great things that we have noticed about like our time of testimony together. And that's what we came together saying, like, we want to hear the story, the, the story of God's faithfulness to you so that we might rejoice at the story, not rejoice at your faithfulness, not rejoice at any of those things, but to hear through your life, the tale of what God has done so that we might say God is good. Right. And that's what Paul's getting at here. He, uh, they take this opportunity to genuinely demonstrate their concern for him, right? That's what he says. You were indeed concerned for me, right? But you had no opportunity. Now, Paul writes this so that way they can understand that he knows they hadn't forgotten him. He's like, look, like, I know you guys were just looking for the opportunity. I know you guys were always concerned for me. Even when you couldn't send anything to me, I know that you were that you cared. I know that you wanted to do these things uh, in order to meet the needs that were here. Now we don't exactly know all of the reasons why uh, they weren't they didn't have the opportunity or or why they couldn't receive or Paul couldn't receive gifts from them in the first place. It could have been uh, that the Philippians were in a situation of uh, extreme poverty and they they couldn't. Uh, meet any need there. It could have been that Paul was being transferred um, in between the cities and that he was imprisoned within. It, it could have been any number of these sorts of things, uh, just locking down where he actually was. Uh, but the point that Paul's trying to make here is that the Philippians were looking for opportunities to give. They, they didn't have an opportunity to do it, but they weren't just like, well, I guess we're going to do nothing. I guess we're going to just kind of sit there and like hope, hope everything works out for you, Paul. They were just waiting for Paul to be able to receive. They had identified the area that they wanted to meet the need, but they didn't have uh, the opportunity to bring that gift to him. And so they weren't just sitting around. They weren't just messing around, but rather they had been praying. They had been looking to see how they might serve Paul. And then when they did have the opportunity, Paul rejoices at this opportunity uh, for them to send their gift to him. Now, Paul writes this here, uh, framing it in such a way that they were looking for these opportunities, right? They were looking for these opportunities to meet this, this need. And as such, um, as such, they were being mindful of, of what the Lord would provide for them right? Of what the Lord would give to them in order to meet that need. And Paul was aware of this. Look at, look at verse 11, because he says here that he's, he's not in need, but that he's learned a secret. Look at verse 11. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned 
in whatever situation I am to be content, right? Paul says, he comes straight out and he says, I'm like, I'm not in need in the truest sense anymore, right? I'm, I'm not in need. And he's trying to get to the point to where he says, I want you guys to have the opportunity to serve. I want you guys to have the opportunity to meet these needs. But he's, he's pointing this out um, for a particular reason, right? Because he wants them to learn the same secret that he has learned. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. In whatever situation, not some situations, not, uh, not just a few that seem like they have the useful resources for me. Paul says, I have learned in every situation, in whatever situation I am, to be content, right? Notice he doesn't say that I've learned to be okay with things or indifferent. Like, I guess like this is my lot in life. I guess I'll deal with it. Like he, he doesn't have that attitude. And he also doesn't have the attitude of like, okay, well, I guess we'll like, you know, deal with these lemons that life has dealt me and I'll try to make lemonade out of it. That's not what he says either, right? Because that's the practical advice that we would receive from people who are not believers, who are not Christians. Like, all right, well, like, you know, make the best of the situation. Do what you can with it. You know, you take advantage of, of what little you have and, and try to make the most of it. But Paul doesn't, he doesn't do that, right? He frames this as contentedness, right? What that means here is that he's speaking directly in opposition to the idea of covetousness, right? He says here, as he's in the situation, he's not looking around at anybody else and thinking, well, why do they have that? Or what, what's the deal with that opportunity? Or it sure would be nice if I had those resources, right? He is absolutely settled and at peace with what he has and what has been given to him, right? Remember, he said, do not be anxious, but offer up prayers with thanksgiving and the God of peace will be with you, right? Then he says, set your mind on these things that are true, right? One of these things is that that's true and just and right and honorable and commendable is the work of Christ. And then he says, when you do that, the God of peace will be with you. So Paul's perfectly at peace. And so this is what he's trying to get us to understand that when we understand what Christ has done for us, when our identity is firmly rooted in him, that joy in Christ, it enables us to be content, not just okay, not indifferent, but to be without desire, coveting these other things uh, and at rest, at peace, right? That's what, he's, that's what he's getting at here for the Philippians. That's what he's getting at for us. He is at rest. He says, I have learned in whatever situation. Now, let's, let's just take that for a second and consider it. He says straight up, I have learned this. This isn't a natural desire. This isn't something that you're just like, oh man, like I'm so far behind. Well, it's like, yeah, because you have to learn it. It takes time. 
it, it takes time for this to go by. It's, it's not just like, well, you're going to flip the switch and one day, like everything is completely like I have, I have none of these, um, none of these desires uh, for these worldly things, right? Rather, Paul says that it took time for me to learn these things. He doesn't learn this lesson quickly. It's not a, an easily learned lesson. But as he goes on, he'll explain the many seasons that he's had to go, go through. Now, what is the difference here? Right? Because as you start to speak into this a little bit more, then you start to like look at some of the other ways of thinking of this time when Paul writes. There were people who were, who were speaking to uh, different philosophies at this time that would say like, oh yeah, you've got to detach yourself more from life, your emotions more and more. You've got to get rid of those things. And so you don't end up caring about uh, anything. And that's how you really get ahead in life. Uh, and in our modern day, you would translate this out to you know, different uh, world religions that are kind of have a, a, an anchor or root in Buddhism, uh, you know, and it's about like emptying yourself out and not having any desires or, or anything that you really want to pursue, right? But for the Christian, this is not about having uh, zero desires. This is about having one mainly right and true desire that is Christ and then developing a new set of desires that are based upon what Christ desires to do. So it's, it's one uh, foundational desire of enjoying Christ and being with him and wanting your identity to be reformed by him and reorienting your life around him, and then uh, living out of the new identity that he has given to you, as the book of Colossians tells us that we are in Christ, then you're living out of those same desires that Christ has. You're learning how then do we have good and righteous and pure and true and commendable desires? How do we live in accordance with God's nature and character? And so this is a very different way uh, than being uh, divorcing your, your, your body, your mind uh, from worldly desires in, that you would find in ancient philosophies. And this is very different than uh, the modern way of some of these religions that are uh, rooted in Buddhism, where you're detaching yourself from these desires and you're not supposed to have any desires, right? This is a, a totally different way. And this is exactly what Jesus desires for us to understand. Because when we learn, as Paul learned, to be content in whatever situation that we're in, when we learn to submit ourselves to Christ uh, in every situation, then we learn contentment, right? When we have joy in Christ, it enables us to be content. It enables us to not just be okay, but to be absolutely at peace. Now, why is that? Well, it's because when we enjoy Jesus, when we understand who he is, we realize that he is absolutely better, better than everything. That's why Paul says in Philippians chapter 3 that he's willing to give all things up, everything up, to count all things as, as rubbish, to let all things go as loss that he perceived as value for the sake of gaining Christ. He's like, I don't, I don't really need all of those other things. Those things are a distraction. And so when you have what 
you have exactly what you were willing to give everything up for, then you're not really feeling like you're missing out on anything, right? And so what Paul wants us to fundamentally understand is that Jesus is better. That that's how he finds this contentment. He understands what Christ has done for him. It's the love of Christ that compels him. It's what God has done in his life that compels him. It's that he remembers that he has been uh, crucified with Christ and has been raised with him. And so uh, this desire that Paul has uh, is for Christ. And out of that desire comes contentment because Christ has given us the fullness of himself. Now, by contrast, Paul gives us now some comparisons in verse 12. He says, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. He had great seasons of need. He lived in, he, he was content when he lived in poverty. He was brought low. He had need. He faced hunger. Uh, he was a prisoner uh, for a good number of years, and within um, uh, the the kind of Roman setup for Roman pr prison systems, as a prisoner, you had to get your own food, like you had to like pay for your own food and your own medical care. And so, wh whether you were cared for or whether you had food was dependent upon your ability to provide that. Right? Rome didn't just be like, okay, well, here's what, everything that you need. If you wanted what you needed, you needed to find a way to get to pay for it. Um, and so Paul learned to live in being brought low, as he says. He had need, he faced hunger. Um, but then he also said that he had to learn to be content with living in abundance. He had to learn to be content with living in abundance. Which seems a bit weird because the lie that society has told us is that if you have um, an abundance, if you have uh, great wealth, then you're going to be happy. Then you're going to be content, right? This is what makes you successful. But Paul says, that's not the case. What happens is that you begin to desire more and more. And, and uh, when you're living in abundance, you more likely have a natural desire to covet, right? Uh, you desire to have more things, right? Paul says here, that he was brought low, but then he also knows how to abound. He's learned the secret of uh, facing abundance. It seems like an odd, an odd challenge to face abundance. But consider the words uh, of warning that Paul gives to Timothy uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 6. He says this, As for the rich in this present age, Charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Right? So the, the challenge there is that there's likely this desire to covet. There's a likely uh, this um, opportunity to present oneself as prideful. Uh, he says, tell them not to be prideful, not to be haughty, not to be boastful right? Not to be hoping in their riches, right? That's what they're, they're doing. But he says, by contrast, you should hope in God, who's the true provider, God, who is the one who really meets your need, right? God, who is the one who truly takes care of you, right? 
There's, it's not an illusion uh, that your money takes care of you. It's the Lord who provides for you. It's the Lord who takes care of you. It's the Lord who has been faithful again and again. Uh, in Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 5, Solomon writes this. He says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is a vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. See what, see what Solomon's getting at there? He's like, look, like having like a lot of money just gets you in trouble. It just puts you in a position where like, even, even if you think you're doing well and you're eating a lot, you can't even get a good night's sleep because like you're overeating, you're overindulging, you're, you're, you're taking on things that make your stomach upset. He's like, you can't even get a good night's sleep, but the one who, who, who labors, right? That person, whether they have a lot or a little, they have put in, they're content with how they've achieved or how, how they've received their wealth. They're content with how they're resting. Their body is in a better position. Um, they're being faithful over what they have. Uh, and so he says here that there's just a, a opportunity that we have before us that we're likely to put uh, too much of an emphasis on wealth and riches. And so uh, Paul says here, um, you know, when he had material things, these things did not become his reason or focus uh, for the joy in his life. It was Jesus who was the joy. He had things in his life, but it didn't make him greedy. It didn't make him someone who was coveting more. Um, and he didn't have this desire to protect these things because he had all that he needed in Jesus. And so this is why he can say that he learned to be content in abundance. He learned to be content when he was not facing hunger or need, right? It's, it's, it's quite an astonishing statement to hear. And so he says here that I have, I've learned this, right? And then he gives us the actual, uh, the secret here, right? He says, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. And in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Here's the secret, right? Here is the secret. Verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Here's Paul's secret. This is it. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This is it, right? Maybe you've heard this verse before. Maybe you've heard it used in a number of different ways before, but I will tell you, it does not mean that you can do whatever you want to do because God will help you with whatever you want to do. That's not what it means. What Paul's getting at here is that he is content in every situation. He's content in anything that comes his way because his life flows out of Christ. I can do all things. I can face hunger. I can face need. I can, um, I can have a lot of money. I can have a lot of resources, a lot of opportunity. I can do these things because Christ, he, he strengthens me 
to obey him. He strengthens me to be rooted in him. He strengthens me to follow him in his identity and not my own. He strengthens me to um, obey his commands and to walk with him. And so he says here, I can do all things, all the situations in his life, whatever he's facing, Paul's greatest desire is to know and enjoy Jesus. And he wants others to know and enjoy Jesus as well. And he says, you're not going to learn how to be content in life by experiencing all the different circumstances that come your way and you learn them, right? It's not like a, it's not like level one, I learned this. Level two, I learned this. Level three, I learned this. And you're facing the, the same circumstance with different, uh, with increasing levels of difficulty. He says, if you want to navigate any and every situation, know Jesus, learn him, walk with him, be with him. And as you grow in faith, then as situations come your way, no matter how difficult they are, you will be equipped to handle them because Christ is with you every step of the way. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The main point of that verse is that it is Christ who strengthens and he strengthens in his own way, in his own, um, th through his own equipping, right? So this does not mean that he's going to give you the ability to like pursue your wildest dreams or to, uh, proceed in such a way where you are seeking out other avenues to achieve your goals and he's going to help you along the way, right? He's not like a, he's not like a life boost or like a life hack, right? But what Paul's getting at here is that he is the goal. He is the prize. He is the treasure. And sometimes it seems like we are willing to to do anything and try anything except for Jesus. We're like, hey, like I will do anything for this. It's like, okay, well, why don't you just do nothing except enjoy Jesus? Why don't you do, why, why don't you like stop pursuing all these other things? Why don't you stop going in all these other directions and just slow down and focus on him? Because that's really what Paul is saying here. Make Jesus the primary goal, the primary focus of your entire life and only do what he wants you to do. Only go where he wants you to go. Learn what it is to walk with him because that is how Paul has learned to live in contentment and to face plenty and to face uh, abundance or, and to face hunger and to face need. He's learned how to face all these things because he has made Christ his deepest and greatest treasure. When we do that, we're able to withstand the loss of all things. This is why Paul says to live is Christ and to die is gain. He's like, I'm, I'm not, I'm not losing anything, right? Like I, I'm here. I'm going to live for Christ. If I'm going to die, I'm going to be with Christ. Like he's laser focused upon being with the ultimate treasure. And so he desires for us to understand how we might be a people who are standing firm in the midst of a world of shifting circumstances to have great contentment. <clears throat> and so now he moves on, uh, giving, have given, having given that secret out, he says, here's then how you should live in such a way so as you're not um, controlled by your own possessions. You're laser focused on Jesus, and here's a way that you can go about not being focused on these other things that are likely to distract us. He says in verse 14, 
Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into the partnership with me in giving and receiving, except only you. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. So Paul says here, here's how you navigate this. When you find joy in Christ, when you are anchored in him, when your identity is in him, it gives you the power to not hold on to your earthly possessions. It gives you the focus to say, if Christ is who he says he is, if he uh, is really the hero and he really has called us to make disciples of all nations, then I want to get behind Paul here and enable him to do so. Right? And Paul says, you guys have shared my trouble. He's speaking back to how he's described them earlier in the book, where he's called them partners in the gospel, um, and, and that he's called them partakers of grace together. Uh, he's spoken to their commitment um, earlier in the book by them sending Epaphroditus to provide this gift. Uh, he's like, look, like you guys have, have been willing to give in this sacrificial manner. You're willing to to not be controlled by your possessions, but are compelled by the gospel. And when they do that, they demonstrate uh, the nature of God. They demonstrate this conduct of the gospel. And he says here that you Philippians, in the beginning of the, uh, in, in the, beginning of the church of Philippi, nobody else came alongside them financially. He's like, you guys were the only ones. Uh, to, to get things going, right? No church entered into the partnership with me in giving and receiving except only you, right? And then he says, beyond that, even when you were in Thessalonica, even when I was in Thessalonica and I was working on the church there, you sent me money for them to help get things going then. Help for my needs once and again. In his letter to the Corinthians, uh, Paul even notates uh, the Philippian faithfulness um, in in, in his uh, letter to them, he says, uh, I was robbed in 2 Corinthians 11, uh, chapter 8, or chapter 11, verse 8. I was robbed, I robbed other churches. He doesn't mean literally robbed. He just means like I took up finances from other churches by uh, other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. He's like, they had need, but they gave uh, sacrificially. That's what he's getting at here by saying robbed. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone. He's like, I was with you, Corinthians, and, and I had need, and, and I didn't ask anybody about getting um, what I needed financially. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my needs. That's the Philippians. Like, they came, and they met his need. They were so uh, excited about the gospel going forth that they wanted to contribute to the furthering of the gospel, that they wanted to make sure that Paul had what he needed, that he was equipped, that he could continue to do his job. And so when the Philippians gave, it demonstrated the gospel. Uh, it demonstrated that God has provided for his people. He's made a way for Paul to go out and to proclaim the truth of the gospel uh, in Thessalonica, in Corinth. And so uh, here, Paul says, Philippians, you have acted uh, accordingly. You have moved forward uh, in faith here. He continues on, and he tells us how we continue to be uh, able to find joy in Christ and avoid being possessed by our possessions. He says in verse 17, uh, not that I seek the gift, 
but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. He says, Paul says, I, I don't need the money, but in you demonstrating your giving, like I'm seeing fruit in your life. It's not about the actual, that he has the actual need because as he said, God is his provider. Uh, the Philippians know that God is their provider, but he's lining up uh, with this call and uh, even echoing the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter six, right? Where Jesus said, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So Paul says, Philippians, because you're not so willing to hold on to uh, your financial resources here, to your treasure, you're willing to give. I know that your heart is not wrapped around these financial resources. Your motive isn't about keeping uh, these things for yourself, but rather your motive is to see the gospel go forth. And so this reveals, this giving reveals the state of their heart. Their sacrificial giving um, demonstrates that they are believing in the truth of the gospel, that they are coming alongside to see the work go forward. And then he continues in verse 18 <clears throat> and remarks upon that, uh, that shares that their giving is actually in line with an act of worship. And he frames it by linking to kind of, by, by anchoring it in three um, familiar historical references uh, for, um, for uh, these times. So he says, I have received full payment and more. He's like, you guys not only like gave me exactly what I needed uh, to meet, to pay for my bills here, uh, but you exceeded that. You went above and beyond. He says, I am well supplied having received from Epaphroditus the gift that you sent. He's like, you guys just went over and above. You guys gave me everything that I needed. And Epaphroditus did his job. Be completely happy with him. Remember, he's sending Epaphroditus back because they were concerned for him. So he's like, look, you guys got to give him like a hero's welcome. You got to like honor him because he was faithful. He's like, look, Epaphroditus, he just, he continues to crush it. Uh, he, he, I got the gifts from him. But he says, the gifts that you sent... And then he picks these three kind of phrases um, that all speak to uh, Israel's history, but also these acts of worship. The gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a, sac a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God, right? So he describes these gifts from the church that bring their, their sacrificial giving up to the highest level. Uh, it elevates it as worship, as an act of worship, that they um, were a people who were offering these things, not to Paul as just a financial transaction, not a monetary exchange, uh, but rather that they were offering these things to the Lord to say, God, these resources belong to you, and I'm going to give them out and I want you to be glorified in them. And so they do this, and Paul says, this is indeed how they have been received. Now, uh, as they do this with this attitude, they offer um, this gift to Paul as a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Uh, we want to also make note here that even if Paul had some nefarious purposes here, right? Not nefarious purposes, but maybe he was like, oh, I'm not going to really like, I'm not really going to use them what this, what um, these resources for like what you initially thought I was going to use them for. It doesn't change their heart motive because they're giving these things to the Lord, right? How they are being used 
the Lord will deal with whoever is the steward of those things, how they're being used. But it's the, it's the heart of the, the giver that can still be glorifying to God, even if uh, there's not a guarantee of how something is going to be used, right? How do we know that this is the case? How do we know that this is um, uh, similar? <clears throat> um, or how, how do we know that these things line up? Well, this is just a, a, a small way for us to look at, as we said, these things all mirror the gospel. And so this is just a small way for us to look at giving as a manner of mirroring the gospel, right? Because what has God done in Christ? He has given us of his own son. He has generously given us the greatest gift that we could ever receive. He has delivered that over. And that brings him glory as the giver, regardless of whether we decide to receive that gift with thanksgiving or whether uh, they, there are people who reject that gift. It doesn't diminish God's giving spirit. It doesn't diminish his generous character. It doesn't diminish his motive with which he seeks to give. He is still the generous giver who is seeking to meet the needs of those who have this uh, desperate situation. And in the same sense, as we mirror God in our giving, it doesn't really matter how things are received, but rather uh, we should give with the generosity of heart in mirroring God's character, right? It's not about the reception of that gift, but rather uh, the the attitude with which you give. That's why Paul says that God loves a cheerful giver and that you should give as you've decided in your heart. Now, we're not just speaking only here to the manner of tithes and offerings, uh, but how we interact with one another, generosity of spirit, how, we're, uh, how Acts 2 describes um, how the church had no need um, in Acts chapter 2 because uh, they gave as each had need, as you look to see others and you're giving out of that generosity of heart and mirroring God's character of things that uh, you have surplus of and you do not need. Um, there's all sorts of ways that we can do this. Um, and then secondarily, uh, this also, this isn't the time to unpack the whole thing, but there is a requirement of um, that we should be a people who are wise and we're not just being foolish and being like, okay, yeah, well, we totally know that these people are swindlers and we're going to give them money, right? That's not necessarily... Uh, it's, it's not a blind um, giving here, right? You want, to, um, you want to be faithful, but you don't have to be like overly rigorous with your, um, with your thinking beyond, behind these things. I don't want to unpack that too much because I'll go down a whole rabbit hole. Uh, but the reason being um, of us not having to be so worried about it is anchored in... Uh, the fact that as we are um, operating as givers and meeting the needs of others and, um, and giving out of what we have, those things are really just not our resources to begin with, right? If we misgive, God can provide more for us to reallocate or re-give, or he can meet needs that, uh, you know, we maybe misunderstood or whatever. It's, it, it doesn't thwart his his greater work. This is how Paul puts it um, in verse 19. 
and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So Paul's like, look, I know already you guys have already given sacrificially when you didn't have money to give. Like he earlier describes them as having been robbed, right? But here he says, even if you did that, God will supply every need of yours according to his riches. He, Paul comes back and he says, everything belongs to God. Everything that, that, he, that we have is ultimately his. And so whether he's meeting your needs from uh, an emotional perspective, a material perspective, a spiritual perspective, everything comes out of his riches, out of his provision. He is ultimately the one that is seeking to meet our need, right? This is uh, why Paul writes in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 8 that though uh, we were poor, he, uh, uh, he, though he was rich, he became poor for our sake that we might become rich through his, uh, through his poverty, that we might have his riches, the riches of Christ. And so he doesn't run out of resources. He doesn't run out of um, whatever we might need. And so therefore, as Paul looks through the whole thing of God's ultimate provision that he can find contentment in him, he can find deep joy in him, he ends with these particular words, to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Right? It's the response to God being our provider, providing for our deepest need. How do you respond to the Lord providing for you as anything other than an act of worship, a response of worship to our God and father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Right. I mean, what a great, what a great summary there. This instructs us how we ought to come back with a response of Thanksgiving. And then he finishes the book uh, with these final three verses as final greetings to the church in uh, Philippi. And he says this, remember, the goal, of the, the goal of the book, unity and joy in Christ. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. There's that unity mark again. Everybody, together, greet them in Christ Jesus. And the brothers who are with me greet you. We're separate, but yet we're united together. We greet you. He expands even further from Paul's initial little sphere that he has with him in his jail. Verse 22, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. So he takes it out a little bit further. And then he also gives a little call out to those of Caesar's household. Now, why does he do that? Well, a couple reasons. One, it's encouraging to know that Paul's work is being effective even in the midst of the most difficult place to minister, Caesar's household, right? Caesar declares himself to be Lord. He declares himself to be the king of all Rome, the king of the world. And in the midst of that, there Paul is working subversively to exalt the true king, Jesus Christ is Lord. He comes to make this message known. And those are, there are those who are in Caesar's household who have come to faith. Now, beyond that, it's also a word of encouragement in the midst of, remember, they're facing some hardship and oppression. That Look, Paul's in this difficult situation, and even in the midst of that oppression, even in the midst of his circumstance of being in jail, even there's an opportunity for effectiveness even there, that the Lord is still at work, even in this most difficult circumstance. And so the Lord will continue to be at work 
in his people in Philippi as well, as they face hardship, as they face oppression. And as such, the grace, verse 23, of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. There is that unity together, right? Again, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Spirit to spirit, the saints greet one another. There's this unity of body, heart, mind, soul, and spirit together as we are all focused on worshiping Christ together. And as such, uh, it, it's, it's a, great, <clears throat> um, a great word and a great end to all of us as we all share in that same spirit who raised Christ from the dead, that we all have the same spirit that testifies that we are members of the household of faith, that we belong to Jesus. Uh, it's the same spirit that unites all of us, right? And this is the same spirit that uh, Jesus prays, uh, the Holy Spirit, the same spirit that Jesus prays to in John 17. And he prays that the Lord would make us one, that he would make all of us one, that the church uh, at large, the capital C church, all the believers around the world, that we would be one. And we would be one in heart, one in spirit, in exalting Christ and lifting him up, right? We're about one thing at our church, Jesus, right? And then we figure out how Jesus wants us to interact with any other thing as he leads us to do so. That's it, right? We want to be united in one heart, one faith together to exalt Christ together. And especially at this time of quarantine where they tell us that we have to be apart. But nothing can stop the spirit of God, right? They can tell us that we that uh, we have to be apart, and this is the best way for us to uh, love our neighbors and to take care of our our nation and to seek the peace of our of our city here. Um, you know, as we find outlined in uh, the book of of Jeremiah, the, a way for us to um, be this countercultural group of people of loving our neighbors and seeking the peace of a city, even though we're citizens of another kingdom. Um, there's this way for us to be scattered, but yet united, gathered together, because we are bound by the Spirit of God. We're united together by the Spirit of God. And so um, a great way for us to end um, the book of Philippians and to come to a place of pursuing, um, pursuing that great contentedness in Christ that we are called to. So let's pray, and uh, we'll, we'll respond together in worship. <clears throat> Lord, thank you for your wonderful word and thank you for the scriptures that give us this secret of contentment, a great contentedness, not in our own efforts, not in our own abilities, not in our own provision, but a contentedness in, um, in who you are and the opportunity that you have given to us to find a new life, a new identity in you. And so, Lord, we ask that you would be glorified in your church as we seek to learn, as Paul learned, to practice, as Paul practiced, this uh, opportunity for contentment in you. And we know that we're going to fail. We confess that we're going to fail. We know that we're not going to do it correctly. We know that we're going to be anxious. We know that we're going to um, be a people who are worried. And we know that we're going to be people who are, who are too focused on our economic realities. We know that that's going to be the case. But we ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would convict us of those sins and that you would call us to repentance faithfully each time and that you would give us um, that ability to help each other refocus upon the beauty of Jesus. 
and the work that you have accomplished on our behalf. And so, Lord, thank you for giving us an opportunity to find true joy uh, in the midst of hardship and circumstances, in the midst of shifting sand and um, in, uh, grounds that have been shaken, but yet, Lord, we stand upon the solid rock that cannot be shaken, that is a firm foundation. We're thankful, Lord, that we have uh, the ability to rest in you because you are our refuge and our strength. And so, Lord, be glorified in your church. We love you. Amen.